0: All right, if you have a Bible, please grab it and make your way to the end of the book of 1 Kings chapter 21 and 22. Uh, We will be finishing 1 Kings this week, roll into 2 Kings next week, and uh, finish that up before Thanksgiving. Uh, Then we'll roll into a season of Advent, and then in the spring, pretty much from January till June, we will be making our way through the book of Ephesians. Uh, So that's kind of what's ahead for us. If you um, aren't a fan still, you probably at least know that this past summer, a movie a movie came out called Avengers Endgame. Um, and I loved it. I love it. It capped 23 movies. It capped 3,000 minutes of film. So if you've seen it and you heard the little phrase, I love you, 3,000, that's what the 3,000 is referring to is 3,000 3, minutes of film. But it capped 23 movies and um, I mean, I've seen them all, I love them all, it's a lot of fun, really enjoy those movies. And whether you've seen that one, enjoy that, whether you don't, you like movies like it. Um, Whether it's, you know, whatever type of thing it may be from uh, other movies, books, uh, stories you've heard, because it's, it's a story, it's a movie where the good guys win. It's a story where we see justice served, where the evil Thanos at the end... Is, is defeated and evil is destroyed. Good guys win. We love movies like that. But then we walk out of the movie theater and we come you know, back into the real world and we're faced with questions like, well, where is God? Why isn't he destroying evil and wickedness and sin? Why isn't he avenging the injustice that's poured out on people? Why isn't he defeating that? When it hurts, where where is he? Where where is he in all of these things? Enter 1 Kings chapter 21 and 22. In these chapters, we get a small-scale example of a cosmic and eternal reality that God will not tolerate sin forever. That though he is patient... His perfect justice is coming. There's coming a day where he's going to grab evil by the throat and he's going to destroy it. There's coming a day where Jesus will enter into this world. He will return in his second coming and he'll say to evil, as I often like to talk, I'll be your huckleberry and he will defeat it and he will destroy it and he will bring a reckoning. But it's not a reckoning born out of revenge, it's a reckoning born out of justice and holiness. And listen to me, this is the big one, love. He has wrath because he's loving. And so it's a reckoning born out of who God is. Holy, right, good, and loving. And because he's loving, it necessarily then produces wrath against sin and evil. And these two chapters help to show us this. And so in a lot of ways, this week's kind of like a sequel to last week's message. If you were here last week, we talked about how we're so often prone to try to caricature God. And so in a caricature, you emphasize certain aspects and you minimize other aspects. And we try to do that with God, draw him into the image that we would prefer him to be. So we maximize certain things, we minimize certain things. And one of the things we talked about last week is that we often try to minimize his judgment. We try to minimize His justice. And we talked briefly about it because it only kind of pops up right at the end of chapter 20 when an unnamed prophet comes to King Ahab, evil King Ahab, and tells him judgment's coming. Verse 42 of chapter 20. Judgment is coming on you. It's coming for you. And as we roll into chapters 21 and 22 this morning, we'll see two more warnings And then it does fall. It comes on him. And so again, the point of this is that God is patient. But perfect justice is coming. And not just in this instance here, this one time here at the end of First Kings, but globally and eternally justice is coming. And Ahab gives us a picture of this. And honestly, it should be a little bit terrifying in some ways. It should. In other ways, it should be extremely hope-giving. And that God will not forsake his people forever. That even as we look around the world today and we see evil and oppression and injustice, God will not let it go on forever. He's the true avenger and he will come and bring a reckoning. So here's what we're going to do. We have two chapters. I'm not going to read all of that just for the sake of time, so I'm going to paraphrase most of it. I will read certain sections of it, uh, but uh, we'll make our way, we'll get the story in mind, and then we'll pull out two truths um, after we've kind of made our way through the story. So in in these two chapters, particularly in chapter 21, you have four major people, all right? You've got evil King Ahab, you've got evil snake queen Jezebel, you've got um uh a just good man named naboth just a you know he's just a righteous jewish faithful man named naboth he has this little vineyard that he loves and it's been as his family is like for generations and it's right smack dab, dab next to king ahab's palace and then we also have a rejuvenated prophet elijah who once again come and confront Ahab with a word from the Lord. And we'll get some other characters in chapter 22 as well. But what happens is Ahab wants to buy this vineyard that Naboth has. All right, he wants to buy it. He makes an offer uh, for it. And, and Naboth's like, no, i don't, I don't not, not selling, not interested. And so Ahab goes to his room and pouts. Literally, that's exactly what he does. Verse 4, it says, And Ahab went into his house, vexed and sullen, Because of what Naboth, the Jezreelite, has said to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my father's. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. So he's just having a pity party for himself. So Jezebel catches wind of this, calls her husband a big sissy. And then enacts a scheming plan. Where Naboth, an innocent man will be accused falsely with false witnesses and then will be killed outside the city. Now that should sound very familiar to you because that's exactly what happened to Jesus. An innocent man, falsely accused, false witnesses, killed outside of the city. And so by definition, I mean, this is injustice that's just happened to him. He's been killed so that they could take you know, this uh, vineyard because Ahab wants to make it into a vegetable garden. And so that's what they do. They kill him, but God's not ignorant of what's going on. And so while Ahab's probably planting his vegetables out there in the garden, the hillbilly prophet from Tishbe, Elijah, shows up again. So look at ch- I'll read this part. Look at chapter 21, verse 17. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. And remember, they've got some history, right? Behold, he's in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord in the place Where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth shall dogs lick your own blood. That is a big insult for dogs to like consume your corpse. Verse 20, Ahab said to Elijah, so he shows up and he says to him, have you found me, O my enemy? Elijah answered him, I found you because you've sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and will cut off from Ahab every male bond or free in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah, for the anger to which you have provoked me. And because you have made Israel to sin. And of Jezebel, the Lord also said, the dog shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dogs shall eat. And anyone of his who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. And friends, all of these prophecies of Elijah, just like all the promises of God, come true eventually. God has... Patient, but perfect justice. We're going to see Ahab get it in chapter 22. But Jezebel won't die and be eaten by dogs. And the whole line of Ahab won't be ended until 2 Kings chapter 9. Remember, just like in a baseball game, there's a difference between a rain delay and a cancellation. God's word will come true. The wicked may prosper for a short time, but the arrow of God's judgment will strike. And God, the righteous judge, will have the last word. Now, Ahab may have been able to manipulate the courts and the legal system of his day, but you cannot manipulate the ultimate judge of the universe. He couldn't, I can't, you can't, no one on this planet can, no matter how much power they think they have cannot happen. And so Elijah warns him. And surprisingly, it looks at first like Ahab actually kind of repents for a second. That's what it looks like, at least. And so we get a bit of a rain delay. Things seem okay for a while. And then for the first time in a ton of chapters, we actually see the king of the southern kingdom, king of Judah, show up. His name's Jehoshaphat. He's actually one of the better kings of Judah. He does a lot of good things there. But here Ahab wants to get him to ride out into battle with him against the Syrians. And Jehoshaphat agrees. Why? I don't know. It doesn't tell us. There's a couple of... Maybe he wanted peace with Israel. Maybe there are other political means. Maybe it's because his son married Ahab's daughter. But for whatever reason, he does. But before he does, he at least says, I want to ask God about this. And so... Ahab's like, all right, fine, I'll go get my 400 prophets of Baal. And, and, they, and so they come in and they start telling him, yeah, go do it, go do it, go do it, go do it. And he's like, no, no, I want a real prophet. Go get a, I want a real prophet. And so they get this guy named Micaiah. And Micaiah comes in and after a little bit of poking fun at Ahab, tells him, sure, going up into battle. You're going to die if you do. And Ahab does. He disobeys God's word. He chooses to not trust God's word. Like, here's what you should do. But if you do, this is what's going to happen. He says, "Eh, I don't care what you say. I'm going to do what I want. So he knows what's going to happen. It's the third warning that he's been given. And he still chooses to not trust God's word. What about you and me? Do we trust God's word? When it comes to us and maybe it has something in us and, and we don't like what it says, we don't want to trust that, we don't want to believe that. Just, are, are, are we going to do it or are we going to be more like Ahab and be like, ah, I don't like that, I'm going to do what I want anyhow. Now, God may say this, but I'm going to do this. I don't, I don't care what he says. Well, God is patient, okay? He, God is patient with us. But when you do that, you are running headlong into disaster. Because God's commands are not to keep us from joy, from happiness, from what would ultimately satisfy us. It's not to keep us from that, it's to lead us into that. But when we just wholesale reject that, we are running the absolute opposite way into things that may be short term gain but long term destruction. And so if that's you, repent and trust Christ, turn to Christ, take him as your savior and your Lord. You can't have one without the other. This whole idea, well, Jesus is the savior of my life, but not the Lord of his life. Well, if he's not the Lord of your life, he's not your savior. And you're still in your sins. But again, Ahab rejects the word of the Lord. And so chapter 22, we'll give verse 29, we'll read this part. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, went up to Ramoth Gilead and the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I will disguise myself and go into battle. But you wear your robes as if he could, you know, escape God's judgment. Maybe I'll disguise myself here and dress up. Oh, I'll put him in his royal robes. Maybe they'll kill him instead of me. And the king of Israel disguised himself and went into battle. Now, the king of Syria had commanded the 32 captains of his chariots fight with neither small nor great, but only with the king of Israel. And when the captains of the chariots saw Jehoshaphat, they said, it is surely the king of Israel. So they turned to fight against him and Jehoshaphat cried out. And when the captains of the chariots, I mean, I don't know what he said, but like, I'm not him. Like, that's not me. And when the captains of the chariots saw that it was not the king of Israel, they turned back from pursuing him. But a certain man drew his bow at random, all right, literally without taking specific aim. So they don't know which guy out there is Ahab. He just. And struck the king of Israel between the scale armor and the breastplate. God takes a hold of this arrow and flies it right where he wants. And so it struck the king of Israel between the scale armor and the breastplate. Therefore, he said to the driver of his chariot, Turn around and carry me out of the battle, for I'm wounded. And the battle continued that day, and the king was propped up in his chariot facing the Syrians until at evening he died. He bled out and the blood of the wound flowed into the bottom of the chariot and about sunset a cry went through the army. Every man to his city and every man to his country. Right, go home. So the king died and was brought to Samaria and they buried the king in Samaria and they washed the chariot because it's full. He bled out. He washed the chariot by the pool of Samaria and the dogs licked up his blood. And this is just shows you how debased Israel was at the time. And the prostitutes washed themselves in it according to the word of the Lord that he had spoken. And so that's the story. After this, you get a little bit of information about his his son who becomes king. whose name is Ahaziah. And a little bit of information about Jehoshaphat as well. But that's the story. So what I want to do is I want to... Uh, that's what happens. And so I want to just kind of pull out two truths that I want us to see and kind of walk through. And the first one is rather short, and it's just this, that even in the face of sin and injustice that Ahab has carried out, God is still patient. He gives him three warnings. He gives him three chances to repent and turn back. Okay, God offers that. He offers it to me, offers it to you. But here's the truth that I want us to see, and this is number one in your notes. Number one, god sees through self-serving false or fake repentance god sees through self-serving fake repentance because again chapter 21 elijah confronts ahab and at first it looks like ahab repents the text even says like that ahab humbled himself and we see that god holds off from immediate judgment so we think, well, maybe, this, maybe what's going on here is actually legit. Is he repenting? But then again, true repentance involves restoration because it results in a heart change. I mean, true repentance is like Zacchaeus who after he trusted Christ, he went and he repaid fourfold what he had done to others in robbing them. But we don't get we don't read of any action of Ahab in trying to restore what he had broken. Even in this specific example, we don't see him trying to give the vineyard back to Naboth's family. He never admits any wrong thing that he's done. He doesn't produce any fruit in keeping with repentance. Instead, he seems to be the guy who gets caught In his sin. And has remorse over getting caught. But not actually over what he did. And so that kind of person. they'll, They'll play the part. They'll fake repentance. They'll say the right things. To minimize the fallout. But their heart is just as far from God. As it ever was. Is that you? Is that me? Friend, if that is you, brother, sister, open your eyes. Spirit, invade and open their eyes. Don't run from repentance, seek it out. It is God's kindness when your sin is exposed. He's trying to open your eyes and get you to turn. Don't spurn him. Turn to him. I mean, absolutely, the Christian faith is not a religion for people who do not sin, right? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right? We, ha- we are all sinners. So it is absolutely not a religion for people who do not sin, but it is absolutely not a religion for people who won't repent. And so repent, truly. Because God sees through false repentance. You can fool people, you can't fool God. That's number one. Number two. Number two is just the title of the sermon. God's perfect justice is coming. all right. God's perfect justice is coming. And it's coming, as I said in the intro, because of who he is. Holy, righteous, good, and loving. And everybody loves that p- what, last part when we describe some of the attributes of God. Everybody loves to talk about 1 John 4. 8. God is love, and he is But His holiness and His righteousness and His justice and judgment, we want to push it over to the sideline or caricature it away. But what we're failing to see, even in our attempt to do that, is if we believe truly that God is love, then by definition, that means He has to have wrath against things that harm those things that He loves. In other words, wrath does not eliminate love, it actually proves it. I'm going to say that again. Wrath does not eliminate love, it actually proves it. And so think with me. Is it not true that if you actually love something, you are going to have wrath if if, if something harms that thing that you love? So just make it more specific. That's a theoretical way of putting it. If you break into my house and you hurt one of my girls or my wife, I don't know if you've seen the trailer yet for the, for the movie, but I'm going to go straight Rambo last blood on your hind end. <laughs> Why? Because I love them. And so again, wrath doesn't... And wrath, by definition, is... is I'm going to find where I wrote it in my notes because it's a hard word for me to say, Russell. I don't want Russell's our grammar police. (laughs) Reciprocatory punishment. Did I get it right? All right, great. That's what wrath is. And so wrath doesn't eliminate love. It actually proves it. Because, I mean, if you don't love something and you don't give a rip, what happens to it? You don't care. There's no affection. There's no love for it. You don't care. So if something happens to one thing and you don't care about it and it gets abused and it gets attacked and wrecked, who cares? I don't care. But if you do love something and it's abused and ravaged, then you care because you love And so judgment does not mean lack of love. It's 100% based upon love. Again, just make it, and this is, I mean, graphic a little bit. If I didn't care what some pedophile could do to my children, I don't love them. I don't care. But I do care. Taking that up to the eternal, God cares. Because God loves his creation, and so God has wrath against things that harm his people. And so we need to understand this that God, it, not just his people, against things that are wicked, and things that are sinful, and things that are evil. And we need to understand this truth about God that God is a God of righteous wrath. It's one of his characteristics. It gets the most press in all the Bible. Which means it's a big deal. And so we don't want to pigeonhole that. Shove it to the side. Caricature it. Or, or just dismiss it as you know some revivalistic. Fire and brimstone thing of a bygone era. No, it's a reality. As harsh and hard as it may be for us to wrap our mind. It is a reality. Born out of. Love, God's anger and hatred and wrath and judgment on sin is real because he's loving. And so in love, he hates evil. In love, he hates wickedness. In love, he hates sin and he will avenge it. Injustice, he hates he will avenge it. He will pour out his wrath. He will not tolerate it forever. Even as Wendy read a few minutes ago, 2 Peter 3 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come, like a thief. And so he's patient, he's waiting, he's giving an opportunity for repentance. He gave Ahab three different warnings from three different prophets. Repent, repent, come home. So he gives these opportunities. But where there is no repentance, rest assured God's wrath will fall. Hebrews 9.27 says it's appointed for man once to die and then Judgment. And for some of us in here, this should be terrifying. Because you are outside of Christ right now. And God repays every evil act of sin and rebellion with his righteous vengeance. And again, he does it because he's love. And we want this on the one hand. That's why we like movies like Avengers. That's why we like crime TV. That's why we have injustice for all in our Pledge of Allegiance. We love to see justice done. We just don't like to see it done to us. We don't like to see that we justly deserve condemnation because of our sin. So instead, we try to implement a diversion tactic, maybe mentally with God or maybe for some of us younger ones, you know, with with our parents. A diversion tactic and play a game of comparison and always find someone worse than us and say, well, at least I'm not like so and so. Well, great, that's wonderful. Glad you're not fantastic. That has nothing to do with the fact of your own sin. It does not alleviate your own sin. And so understand, when it comes to our condemnation before God, I'm not talking about penalty. Penalties may, in hell may, may vary depending on the degree, but just your condemnation before God. The size of your sin has nothing to do with it. Rather, the size of the one you've sinned against. And so the way I've illustrated this before is like with something as simple as a lie. Like if you lie to me, all right? Repercussions, I don't trust you, right? But I am at my best 160, sopping wet. There is very little I can do to you, right? Now, you take that up a notch and you lie to a judge in court. Now, all of a sudden, it's a big deal. It's called perjury. You will go to jail. He has greater authority than I do. Take that up eternally. Just look at the escalation here. If if lying to a judge can get you on earth, can get you sent to jail, and if it's treasonous, can get you killed, then how much more can sinning before the almighty, holy, 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 righteous, perfect God of the universe... And so it's who the offense is against that makes rebellion so atrocious, not necessarily what the offense is. So just stop the comparison game. I'm not as bad as so and so. Just stop. Doesn't work. And so you and I, we've sinned against an infinite God and thus are deserving of an infinite penalty against our sin. Infinite wrath, infinite judgment against, and we'll be personal here, your sin. And it's not like you've committed one little thing. This is life. This is your life. It is a life full of sin. Your actions, your thoughts, my actions, my thoughts, our deeds, our motives, they're all laid bare before God, and we are naked in the dark without an excuse because of our rebellion and rejection. And God is the one who repays every evil act of sin and rebellion with his righteous vengeance because he is love. And therefore is just. And so for those who have humbled themselves at the cross. The wrath of the avenger for our sins. Past, present and f- future has fallen on Christ. He's our substitute. He took our place. But for the unrepentant. And for those con- who continue to live in rebellion against God. The eternal fires of hell will reveal the wrath Of the great avenger. And so, for some of this, this should be terrifying. But it doesn't have to be. If you will turn from your sin and turn to Christ, that's called repentance. It doesn't have to be. But while the wrath of God is terrifying on one hand, it's also comforting because it means then that there is an answer when the helpless are abused when evil dictators are followed when orphans are trafficked when babies are dismembered and murdered when injustice reigns when god is mocked that there is vengeance for these things there is justice all things will be set right either your adversary will pay their sin they'll pay their debt in hell or They will repent and trust Christ so that their debt was paid on the cross. But for those who don't, for those who've wronged us terribly, murder, betrayal, manipulation, abuse, whatever it may be, and they do not repent and believe. Their sins, their penalties, not suffered by Jesus. They've rejected the substitute. And they will suffer the wrath of God on themselves. See, folks, Jesus absorbed the wrath of God for all who are in him. But those who reject Christ will bear their own guilt. And they will bear that dreadful reality from this holy God. And so God tells us, especially as it comes down to us and we've been wronged and we've been abused and we've been manipulated and we've suffered injustice. He tells us in Romans chapter 12, verse 17, I've read it to you many times. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Verse 19, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay. And so vengeance is the Lord's. It's not yours. You understand that? It will be avenged, but it's not for us. It's for God to do. And so it's not up to us to seek it. He'll take care of that. What we're to do is offer both sides of the cheek, to forgive 70 times 7, to repay no evil with evil, but rather, verse 20 of Romans 12, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And so you can let go. Those of you who've been abused, you've been hurt, you've been, you've suffered manipulation, whatever it may be. You can let go of your anger. You can let go of your bitterness. You can let go of your desire to punish, because vengeance is the Lord's. He will repay. And we can trust Him to meet out. You know what's right. Vengeance will come. And so for those of you who've suffered that way, and there's never been any real apology, there's never been anything done to try to make it right, which we've all probably been through at some point. Now this person's just out there, and they're getting away with it. They're scot-free, and we look at that, and we just see it, and this this is not right, this should not be this way, this is not fair, this is unjust, I have suffered this, and this person's out there doing what they're doing, and nothing's befalling them, nothing's coming upon them, this is not right, how can this be again? Again? Verse 19, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And so lay down that burden of anger and that burden of just nursing your own hurts over and over in your heads with feelings of being wrong, lay that down. And by laying it down, it doesn't mean it wasn't real, doesn't mean it doesn't hurt, doesn't mean that, you know, that there is no justice. It doesn't mean that there is no great wrong done to you. No, it means that you can lay that burden down because God will pick it up. God will take care of it. God will. Take up your cause and see that justice is done so you can lay it down. You don't have to carry that anger and that bitterness and that hatred around. And furthermore, you shouldn't. Jesus says it will destroy you. Let it go. Vengeance is the word. He will take care of it. And so vengeance, that word, hear that vengeance. And again, we like that as we're thinking about it happening to those where, you know, who've abused us. Oh, justice. Yes, yes, yes. But then we are the ones who've betrayed God. And so God should rightfully have that same level of vengeance, except perfect, because ours is imperfect, against us. He has vengeance and wrath for his enemies. And so here's the reality. Some of you walked in here today with that on you. You have never truly trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior. And the wrath of God and His vengeance is on you. You don't have peace with God. But here's the good news. God need not be angry with you anymore. If you confess your sins to Jesus and place your faith in Him, there is an exchange that takes place. And He takes your sin and He takes your guilt and He takes your shame he takes God's wrath against your sin and he gives you his righteousness and God's unending love. That's what happens. He he gets what you deserve. You get what he deserves. And so then through Jesus God is no longer angry with you and never will be because your punishment has been paid. It's like with a great big, you know, invoice stamped paid in full. It's gone. It's been taken away, not by anything you've done. But what Jesus has done for you. That's why the gospel is called that's why it's good news. It's good news. We can be set free. We can be rescued. There's good news. And so even as we think about all of this wrath and all of this judgment, and all this vengeance that God has against our sin, my sin, your sin, all this that he has, like we even talked about last week, all of that. Only serves to highlight this good news, to highlight this gospel. Because the 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 message of the Bible that doesn't really make sense isn't that God has wrath. That makes sense. We're sinners. What's crazy is that he would save us. Those of us we've rebelled against him. But he offers to save us. Like we deserve wrath, we deserve hell, we deserve judgment. But Jesus came and took judgment for us, knowing full well every act of rebellion in your heart, mind, and soul, and in mine. Every single time you've mocked God, you've belittled God in your actions, your thoughts, your deeds. He still, knowing all of that, chose to go to the cross for you and call you to himself. Or maybe he's calling you to himself now. And he offers this freely because of his perfect life that he lived in the place of our imperfect life and his undeserved condemnation In place of our deserved condemnation. His death in place of undeserved death. In place of our deserved death. And his glorious resurrection that cements it all. That's the grace that God holds out to you. He took your place. Jesus suffered in your place. And so friend, repent. Jesus loves you. He went to the cross for you. He died for you. He's pleading with you, reaching out to you, maybe even right now. So trust Him. Give your life to Him. Decide to trust Him for salvation. His arms are open wide to you. Right now. But If you don't, Let me rephrase it, if you won't. Same thing, different way. If you won't. As Jonathan Edwards famously put it. You're like a spider dangling by a burning thread over the fires of hell. So repent. And turn. God is the great avenger. He delivers his own, he destroys his enemy and he will not let the mess of this world against his glory and against his people and the injustice and the wrong of this world and the sin and the evil and the wickedness of this world. He will not let it go on forever. There's coming a day when the Avenger will come riding in on a white horse and grab evil and injustice by the throat and crush it forever. Again, 2 Peter 3 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And so, friend, outside of Christ, trust him today. Because a day's coming. The Avenger is coming. And there's deliverance and there's destruction. And the dividing line is faith in Christ. Which side of the line are you on? Let's pray. Father, when we think of your justice and judgment, we are filled with these simultaneous feelings of terror if we're outside of Christ thankfulness if you have reached into our lives and saved us. And also hope that there is an answer for the injustice of the world. And the sin and the evil and the wickedness that seems to just go on. That it won't always go on. That in your economy and in the way as the psalmist describes it, it's just a breath, it's a flower. Fades and withers quickly. And so, Father, for those in this room who need hope today that there is an answer to the injustice of the world, the sin of the world, the wickedness of the world, fill them with hope that you are the great avenger. And you are not ignorant of our plights and what's going on in our life just as you are not ignorant of what had happened to Naboth. And that you will bring a reckoning because you are loving and you are just. Fill us with that hope. For those of us who, well, for others, word then there needs to be Perhaps filling with a feeling of seriousness and earnestness. That you are an avenger, that you will punish all sin and evil and wickedness. And that outside of Christ, that includes us. But you offer salvation in Christ for anyone, no prerequisites. So draw people to yourselves in this moment. Maybe for others of us, we've been living a life of false, of duplicity, falseness, fake repentance. And you were bringing us to true repentance today, Lord. For others of us, Lord, perhaps hearing about the plight of people who do not trust you would, would you motivate us to share Patiently and lovingly the truth of the good news, that there's good news, that there is salvation to be had. And we would be serious about being the agents of reconciliation you've made us to be. To this world. For your glory and their own good. Whatever it may be, God, that you're stirring in the hearts of those in this room in this moment. We pray that you would have thine own way. Have thine own way. And cause us to see the glory of your holiness. And bask that you've made a way in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.